Our second reading for this morning comes from Exodus chapter 19, beginning to read at verse 8. I'll be reading from the Common English Bible. Together, let us listen for the word of God. On exactly the third month anniversary of the Israelites leaving the land of Egypt, they came into the Sinai Desert. They traveled from Rephidim, came into the Sinai Desert, and set up camp there. Israel camped there in front of the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you should say to Jacob's household and declare to the Israelites. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to me. So now, if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession out of all the peoples, since the whole earth belongs to me. You will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. These are the words you should say to the Israelites. So Moses came down, called together the people's elders, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all responded with one voice, everything that the Lord has said we will do. Moses reported to the Lord what the people said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bless their hearts. I love the Israelites' enthusiasm. I can almost hear them shout, everything that the Lord has said we will do. They've had three whole months of freedom under their belts now, and now find themselves camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And at this moment, they are all in, completely ready to do all that God asks. God has reminded them of the way they were whisked away on eagle's wings from Egypt, how even the sea could not stand in the way of their march to a new life. God calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's easy for me to overlook just what a mind-blowing transformation they have undergone. This is a complete 180 from where they were and who they were just months before, at least in the eyes of the larger world, they were enslaved. They were disposable nobodies in Pharaoh's eyes and probably in their own eyes too. God has reminded them and the Egyptians who and whose they are. God has called them out, placed them on a new path, and now God is set to make a new covenant with them here in the wilderness. A covenant that lays out the ways they are to live with him and with one another in the midst of a larger world. This covenant will take the form of the law, the Ten Commandments, a gift that spells out what it means to be God's holy nation. Now let's be honest, it can be a challenge to understand God's law as a gift. Mention of the Ten Commandments often conjures up images of exceedingly heavy stone tablets inscribed with an abundance of thou shalt nots, to be read in a gruff and deep voice, of course. Even in recent years, these laws have been weaponized in the public square, and yet they were never intended to be weapons, nor were they written as a way of reigning in a world gone mad. 
No, these ten rules were understood from the outset as a promise, a covenant between God and the people of God, an internal memo of sorts intended to shape a people whose primary king and highest allegiance is the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the law, God is setting up fence posts for people moving in and among other cultures and nations, distinctive ways of living in obedience to God and concern for one another in a diverse world. Our own Reformed Protestant tradition has embraced the law in particular ways from the days of John Calvin. The law has three roles, three jobs even. The first role or use is that it functions as a mirror, showing us clearly where we fall short. For example, the law reminds me that I am often quick to place other things, including my opinions, above God on any given day without even thinking. So reading the Ten Commandments is a wake-up call. I'm not as faithful as I think I am. The law also restrains us when we might not automatically restrain ourselves. Don't hit, for example. God does not want me to swipe my neighbor's cow, nor does God approve of my trying to claim that my neighbor's brilliant and insightful sermon is mine. So the law, which for Calvin includes not only the Ten Commandments, but also the promise of grace and salvation, is a way of reminding me how I do not measure up to God's expectations on my own, and a way of giving me clear guardrails for living a faithful life in the world. These are the first two uses. But for Calvin, the law is also a blessed guide, instruction for how I can honor God as I live and move in the world. The law is not a dismal burden, but a gracious help. A scholar, Mary Lane Potter, reminds me Calvin understands God as the guardian of our welfare and our chief teacher. So God offers the law not as a way to punish us or weigh us down, but rather for our benefit and aid to faith. And faithful living. Potter lifts up Calvin's insistence that the law is a peculiar manner of teaching, which shows us the road in order that we might not be errant pilgrims who ramble about from pillar to post, led by our appetites, but that we might be led as if by God's hand. In other words, Calvin wants us to understand that God wants good things for us, a good, full, and joyful life as God's people in God's world. And the law is one way God reminds us of this. You may have noticed that you didn't get to sit down as soon after we sang the Gloria as you usually do. We did something different in the order of worship this morning, the summary of the law. On the heels of being reminded that we are saved by grace, that God indeed forgives us, we are then given a chance to hear Jesus' summary of the law, love God, love neighbor. As we said a few moments ago, it is that simple, not easy, simple. And it is good to rehearse this as often as possible because I, for one, need all the reminders I can get. One of my favorite writers is Kate Bowler, who teaches at Duke Divinity School. Dr. Bowler is an expert on American Protestantism, particularly the prosperity gospel. She is also a wife and a mother who was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer before her child could walk. She wrote earlier in the week about 
struggling with chronic pain and had been particularly bad that day. And she spoke about how her friends had helped her by listening to her, encouraging her, helping her celebrate her latest book being released in paperback and giving her room to rage and cry. Near the end of her post, she wrote, I am built from the outside in. I am built from the outside in. So are the Israelites. So are we. We are not built to do this on our own, nor do we build ourselves into faithful followers all on our own. We are not self-made by any stretch of the imagination. God creates us for a good, full, faithful, joyful life and community, and God knows such a life ain't easy. We meet the Israelites this morning only 90 days or so since they've left Egypt behind, at least geographically. They're fearful and ornery, easily tempted to fall back on what seems easy or safe. They need help remembering. They need reminders, guidelines on how to orient themselves and their community to honor God and who they are and what they do. Scholars date the writing of Exodus to a long stretch of time dating from the years of David or Solomon on through to the time of exile. These different chapters have different temptations, don't they? The temptations of Israel's glory days under David's rule differ from the temptations in exile, and yet they are powerful temptations. There are powerful temptations in each historical moment, nonetheless. For when all seems grand and glorious at the top of the mountain, one may begin to believe that she got there all on her own and that nothing can knock her down. And when every remnant of home lies in smithereens and multiple voices offer seductive options for quick happiness, one can begin to think the best life is the one that embraces what is close by, what is popular, what is at least on the surface, easy. So the people of God need reminders, repeated reminders in good times and in bad of who and whose we are called to be. You may have noticed that there's another passage of scripture listed in the bulletin. It's from Leviticus. We don't often read Leviticus in worship, let alone preach from it. Leviticus is filled with the law in all its minutest detail. And it must be said, it contains texts such as the proper cost of a person who is enslaved that are not in keeping with the just and faithful life we believe God intends for us and for all. And yet there is also a moment when God reminds God's self of what is at stake, when God remembers that God made a promise too. In the 26th chapter of Leviticus, God rehearses all the ways the people suffer or will suffer for straying from the covenant, noting that they will find themselves in enemy territory. And God says, but despite all that, I will not reject them or despise them to the point of totally destroying them, breaking my covenant with them by doing so, because I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with the first generation, the ones I brought out of Egypt's land in the sight of all the nations, in order to be their God. I am the Lord. We are built from the outside in. 
God is ever-present, stubbornly faithful, calling us back, leading us forward in faith and faithfulness. God has promised to be our God always. That is who God is. And God does not and will not forget this, even if we do. God does not and will not forget us, even though that may be a tempting option for God at times. My friend and colleague Bob Fuller told a story in a seminary preaching class years ago. Some friends of Bob's had a son named Ben who was four or five years old when they brought their newborn daughter Sarah home from the hospital. Ben was completely smitten with his baby sister and could not wait to hold her. They propped him up in the middle of their bed with pillows all around him and placed Sarah in his arms. Then Ben abruptly told them they needed to leave because he wanted to talk to Sarah by himself. His parents had no clue what Ben had in mind, but they wanted to encourage a close bond between siblings, so they piled more pillows around the two children and scooched to the edge of the room. Ben proceeded to give them a strong side eye. Then they stepped to the other side of the door, cracked just enough to hear what he would say and to rush in if anyone started to take a tumble. Ben leaned forward and whispered, Sarah, I need you to tell me all about God because I'm starting to forget. We are built from the outside in. There are voices shouting at us from every direction, every moment of the day, taunting us to take the easy way, to trounce our neighbors in order to get ahead, to sell our souls to the flashiest power, offering a quick fix. And there is a steady, powerful, whispered hum telling us something different, telling us something true. Remember, you are loved. You are treasured. God created us for a good life, a joy-filled life in community with others who are also created for a good and joy-filled life. And even when we forget, even when we go astray, God still claims us, still works to build us into the people God longs for us to be. The loud voices who feed on fear and hatred and demand our attention make us no promises, not in any lasting or good or holy way. They do not build us up, but rather revel in tearing us down, filling us with fear and ripping our communities apart. Friends, the shouting will not save us. So maybe we would do well to listen for God's whisper again, to tune our ears to that hum, to turn our hearts back to the one who promises to be our God always and forever, to remember whose we are, who and what we are built to be and do. We are children of the promise. God is our God and we are his always. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it.
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.